Chapter twenty six of Just as I Am. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Just as I Am by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Chapter twenty six Whistled Down the Wind. February was over, and the high clear election had begun in the cold and rain of a severe march. The conservative interest was strong in the old county town and Morton Blake found that he had a hard fight before him. He was not a popular man in his neighbourhood. He was respected and liked by his equals. They knew his sterling qualities. But that lower section of society, which sees a landed proprietor only from the outside, did not care about Morton Blake. They knew him only as a young man of reserved manners, who never drank or played billiards at the Peacock, who was rarely seen at local race meetings, and took no part in local cricket matches. Middle-aged people who remembered his father took delight in disparaging the son. His liberal opinions went against him among people who were always praising the days that were gone, and who considered free trade the ruin of England. If he had been a good old Tory, and had clamoured for the revival of the sliding scale, he would have had plenty of supporters among the farmers and burgesses of southern Daleshire but opinions which would have won him friends at Blackford only made him enemies at Highclere. Education for the million, and coffee taverns, and national thrift, and even a cheap loaf, were questions of no interest to a town which had grown up and flourished upon ignorance, beer, and high prices. Then he had Sir Nathaniel Ritherden for his opponent, a man who spent a great deal of money in the town, who was known to be a sworn foe to all cooperative associations, whose opinions were so mildly commonplace, and whose utterances were so amiably vague, that he pleased everybody. Morton fought his battle honestly and well. He was a fine speaker, expressing himself with a vigorous directness which won praise even from those who objected to his politics as dangerous and revolutionary. He had a noble voice, deep and resonant, and he knew how to use it. He had a handsome, intelligent face and a good figure, and he was admired as a fine specimen of the English radical. But as a radical he was feared, and his electioneering tactics were somewhat too bold and independent to succeed with an old-fashioned borough like Highclere, where, with the advance of civilization, direct and open bribery had only given place to indirect corruption. His agent plainly told Morton that the line he was taking was not the road to success, whereupon Morton replied that he would stand or fall as an honest man should. "'Then I'm sorry to say I think you'll fall,' answered the agent. "'Mind, I'm not the man to counsel anything like bribery, but there's such a thing as being too squeamish in electioneering matters.' The code of honour is a trifle wider, you see, in business of that kind, than... Um, I never heard of but one code of honour, and I shall regulate my conduct by that, said Morton. Oh, obstinate fool, thought the agent. Is it meanness or rustic prejudice, I wonder, that influences him? And then he answered with a shrug of his shoulders. I take it that your object is to get into Parliament, and that the mode and manner of your getting there is a detail which you can afford to leave in the hands of a trustworthy agent. Yours is not the first craft that I've navigated through some ugly shoals. 
"'I wouldn't go to heaven if I had to get there by a dirty road,' retorted Morton. The result was exactly as the agent had anticipated. Sir Nathaniel spent two thousand pounds upon bill-sticking, beer, and indirect bribery, and came in at the head of the poll. Morton spent nine hundred upon stationery, postage stamps, agent's fees, and the hire of a room in which to give utterance to his opinions, and his name was lowest in the list. An intelligent minority had voted for him as an earnest politician and an original thinker, but the masses were true to the old candidate, who knew the way to their hearts. Morton went home to Tangley after the election, sorely depressed and disappointed. His agent had told him that he would fail, but his belief in the goodness and honesty of his fellow men had been stronger than his belief in the agent's acumen. He had seen a crowded audience thrill as he spoke. He had seen the glow of enthusiasm in men's faces. He had heard the accent of truth in their loud cheers. He knew that he had touched the hearts of the best among the electors, that he had showed them his mind, convinced them of his earnestness. And yet the majority preferred to be represented by a twaddling old gentleman who spoke once or twice in a session and then delivered himself of truisms which had been old-fashioned or obsolete in the days when Samuel Johnson was a parliamentary reporter. At home, Morton found unlimited sympathy. His aunt consoled him with quiet sweetness. His sisters were loudly indignant, but not without reproachfulness. "'If you had let us give more garden parties last summer, such an insult could never have been offered to the family,' protested Tiny." "'If you had taken more interest in the bazaar in aid of the restoration of the frescoes in the chancel of St. Mary's, all the church people would have voted for you,' said Horatia, who was enthusiastic about things ecclesiastical. "'I hope you will never again stand for Highclere,' said Lizzie Hardman, pale with indignation. "'The stupid people are not worthy of you. At Blackford you would be appreciated. My uncle and my brother were delighted with your speeches.' I sent them the Highclere paper with the report of the meetings at which you spoke. They are only working people, and perhaps I ought not to talk about their opinions here, but they are warm politicians. My dear Lizzie, I am very glad to be appreciated by them, Morton answered kindly. He had turned with a touch of weariness from his sister's reproaches, and even from his aunt's consolations, but these remarks of Lizzie's had a soothing effect. It was something to be understood even by brawny-armed workers at Blackford. Was it not precisely this class whose interest he had most at heart, the rugged sons of toil from whose ranks his grandfather had risen? Among his womenkind he bore himself bravely, too proud to let anyone see how deeply he was disappointed, how ardently he had hoped for a different result. He made light of the matter when Tiny and Horatia harped upon the iniquity of elections in general, and the shameless ingratitude of the electors of Highclere in particular. "'I'm sure the money we have spent in that town would make a golden obelisk as big as Cleopatra's needle, if it could all be melted down,' said Tiny petulantly. "'And now I hope you will let us belong to the civil service cooperative stores, and get our Berlin wool and things at wholesale prices.' Morton went to smoke his cigar on the common directly after dinner in order to escape such sympathy as this. 
bleak and moonless as the night was it was pleasanter to him to ramble among these black furze bushes by the narrow sandy paths which he had known from a child than to sit in the drawing-room and hear his sisters bewail his failure he was altogether depressed and out of spirits a week had gone by without bringing him any letter from dulcie who until now had written every other day he began to fear that she was ill or that sir everard was worse dying perhaps and his daughter alone with him in a strange country there is one comfort in my failure he said to himself there is nothing to tie me to england now i shall start for marseilles to-morrow morning and surprise dulcie in her villa among the pine trees after a long walk about the common he went home wonderfully cheered at the prospect of a speedy meeting with dulcie he went straight to his dressing-room and packed his portmanteau being at all times supremely independent of service he consulted bradshaw found that there was no possibility of starting before the night mail from dover and then some time after midnight went to bed with very little hope of sleeping in this he was agreeably disappointed for worn out with the excitement and the fatigue of the day he slept heartily and long and on waking found the wintry sun shining in at his window and half a dozen letters on the table by his bed among them there was the long-looked-for letter from dulcie a poor thin letter instead of the usual three or four sheets of foreign paper a withered violet dropped from the envelope as he tore it open an emblem of my disappointed hopes said morton thinking of yesterday's failure this was dulcie's letter my dear morton after serious and painful consideration my father has resolved upon withdrawing his consent to our marriage he has reasons of his own which he does not think fit to tell me and i as in duty bound submit to his decision if he were to tell me to lay my head upon the block blindfold i would do it and in the same spirit of blind obedience to his will i write this letter i hope you will forgive me if this act of mine should give you any pain but i have some reasons of my own for believing that the rupture of our engagement will be rather a relief to you than a regret i have packed all the presents you so generously gave me in a box to be sent by rail except the pretty vellum bound in memoriam which i venture to keep as a souvenir of our friendship your always faithful friend dulcie bella courtenay even the signature of this brief letter had an awful look she had never so signed herself before your own dulcie your loving dulcie your fondest truest dulcie this had been the style of thing for the last year and now with a grand flourish of her pen bold and free as if the hand that wrote had never trembled or faltered for a moment appeared this formal signature which looked formidable enough for a death warrant dulcie bella courtenay the first two sentences in the letter were her father's composition the rest was her own morton could not tell that the brief formal note had been wrung from a breaking heart he only felt the cruelty of the stroke he was coldly curtly dismissed and that was all oh, she could hardly write less if she was sending away a servant he said to himself and then re-reading the letter and seeing that the act was sir everard's and that dulcie was only the instrument a horrible idea flashed upon him why 
this is his retaliation for the doubts i ventured to express that last night at fairview he said to himself i remember his livid look of anger the passion with which he repelled my questions oh there can be no longer a doubt it was he whose horse's hoofs were printed on the spot where my father fell it was he false friend jealous husband who struck that deadly blow and not the cur who lies rotting in portland prison my hideous fear the horror i have struggled to shut out of my mind was not a baseless apprehension i accept my release yes dulcie you are right it is a relief to me to be free dearly as i love you my sweet one it is better that i should be free to avenge my father's murder that is my first duty would orestes have stopped to make love and take a wife when once his task was set for him when once he knew what fate had given him to do my poor pretty ophelia i will take back my gifts the pledges of a happy love such bliss was never meant for you and me for me life has sterner claims and harder duties for you oh my love my love what is to become of you if i pursue the purpose that is in my mind is your gentle heart to be broken he read the letter again and saw sir everard's hand in it could dulcie who had so innocently revealed to him the singleness of her heart the depth of her love could she thus whistle him down the wind no the letter had been wrung from her bleeding heart that curt dismissal so coldly worded was doubtless the result of a bitter struggle it was to bring about this separation that sir everard had taken his daughter away even the story of his ill health was perhaps a pretence invented to this end morton answered dulcie's letter with even greater brevity than her own dearest i accept your decree but i shall love you to the end of my life whatever may happen even if it be my fate to bring you sorrow remember and believe this always i love have loved and shall love you only morton p s god bless you for keeping the little tennyson and so ends an old song he said to himself he avoided making an appearance at the family breakfast table by pleading the press of important business letters that must be written in time for the midday post knowing that the too penetrating eyes of his aunts and sisters to say nothing of lizzie hardman's steadfast gaze would read his agitation in his pale troubled face i don't mean to tell them anything yet awhile he said to himself perhaps that one particular detail in all the circumstances of his grief which a man most dreads and abhors in such a case is the overwhelming sympathy of his feminine acquaintances this morning morton would have thought alexander selkirk in his desert island the most enviable character on the face of the globe his aunt dora brought the breakfast tray to the library and stood beside his chair and bent over him and laid her soft cool hand on his burning forehead my dearest boy you're in a fever she exclaimed you must have had a sleepless night oh no auntie i slept wonderfully well yet you look so pale and haggard my poor boy 
"'I'm afraid you feel this disappointment more than I thought you did from your manner last night.' "'Well, I am naturally a little provoked at a dumb dog like good, pompous old Sir Nathaniel being preferred to an energetic young man with ideas of his own. But I shall soon get over it, auntie. I have had a good deal of worry and work, you know, in the last three weeks, and well, that has exhausted me.' "'I see you had a letter from Dulcie this morning,' said Miss Blake, one of whose many duties was the opening of the post-bag. "'But not the usual budget.' I hope Sir Everard is no worse. No, he is about the same. And Dulcie? Is she quite well? Oh, yes, she is pretty well. Oh, sweet child, how I miss her. She is such a loving little soul. Try to get a little more sleep, Morton, when you have finished your letters. You look tired to death. Really, dear aunt, there is nothing amiss with me and when I've written my letters I'm going off on a short journey. I have some business to do at Avonmore, and I shall not be home until nearly midnight. Don't let anybody except Andrew sit up for me, there's a dear good auntie. At Avonmore? What can you possibly have to do at Avonmore? Oh, nothing very particular, but I am glad to have something to occupy me this afternoon, as it will put the election out of my head. Oh, that is an advantage, certainly. But pray don't tire yourself at Avonmore. No fear of that. I shall drive over to Highclere in the dog-cart, and Sims can put up there and bring me back at night. And now, best of aunts, if I am to write my letters... I must leave you to yourself. Yes, I understand. Give my fondest love to Dulcie. Oh, that letter was written before I came downstairs. Shall I put your message on the envelope to be spelt out by all the postmen between here and Provence? Well, I think not. I shall write to my pet this afternoon. If I were to tell her how ill and wretched you look this morning, she'd be miserable. <laughs> well, tell her I am well and happy, said Morton with a curious laugh. There is nothing like putting a good face upon things. Morton's letters were only an excuse for being alone. He wrote a few lines to his parliamentary agent, enclosing a cheque, for even failure is expensive, wrote with friendly brevity to Sir Nathaniel, congratulating him on his triumph, and then he flung himself into his armchair and sat with his elbows on his knees, brooding upon the past and forecasting the future. His path was dark and beset with difficulty. He could hardly take a step forward which would not hasten the coming of sorrow to the girl he loved. Yet to stand still, or to go back, seemed to him impossible. End of chapter 26